Welcome, everybody. This is the Contemplating Christian, where we seek to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And today we're talking about a, uh, a amazing article uh, by Mr. Edward Fazer. He's a Catholic theologian and philosopher and a really smart individual, a really gifted writer. And he has a particular article about um, the philosopher named Plato and basically how uh, Plato had an amazing uh, predictive and prophetic ability that just because of his insights on human nature and the natural law, he was able to, I think, predict a lot of the things that are happening today in culture. And so we're going to look at this and what Plato had to say 2,300 years ago and how that applies to our current culture today. And so to just kind of give a broad summary, Plato's big warnings to uh, big warnings about culture today, he calls egalitarianism, moral relativism, and sexual license. So we can already see how some of those things are going to play into how culture is functioning today. But Sam, what does Plato give as the uh, thing that we need to uh, thing that we need to fix this problem? Yeah, yeah. So Plato was kind of like a prophet in that sense, uh, not like a prophet of the Bible, just prophetic in the sense that he uh, was able to look where things were going and mm -hmm. say it straight. But he said that how things should be is led by reason. And that's kind of what we're actually going to be focusing on. He uh, he gives, or Ed Fazer actually explains what he says. It's not straight from Plato, but the article does quote Plato uh, a little bit. But what he focuses on and explains is the stages of psychology and so our, our soul, so our mind, spirit, and appetite, um, and how that models stages of society. All right. And that's pretty much what it goes over. And he basically says that we have degenerated into these uh, these people who reason is at the bottom and our appetites are at the top controlling everything. And that kind of characterizes the the woke mob and uh, specifically SJW. So social justice warriors. Um, What's an appetite? An appetite. So the appetite is our basically our base desires. So that would be like uh, our desires for sex, uh, drinking, food, stuff like that. And then our spirit would be uh, stuff like uh, courage and bravery where we see something bad happening and it's dangerous, but we do it anyway. And then reason is obviously our intellect and our ability to, to know things and to know the nature of things. So that's one distinction we will have to make and explain is that when Plato was uh, being prophetic or prophesying about all of these things, uh, it was under the context of Platonic philosophy. All right? right. So when we're when we're saying rationality, a lot of people today might say, oh, science or the scientific method or something like that. But we are specifically talking about Plato and his philosophy. Right. And this kind of his whole metaphysics, we could say, uh, just his his view of reality as a whole and uh, the, the study of how things are and the study of reality, metaphysics, uh, is undergirded by essentialism. So this idea that uh, things in nature have essences or forms that are objective facts about reality and that from that we can discern what is good or bad for a thing based on what it is. So like a tree, for example, a good tree is one in which uh, the leaves on it flourish, it grows tall, it digs deep roots in the ground, etc. And then a bad tree is one in which it is um, corrupted and all the roots are kind of gnarly and it's not growing properly and it's a dead tree. That's a, that's a bad tree in the natural law sense. And so Plato, his understanding of philosophy and metaphysics, metaphysics is undergirded by this idea that these objective facts are true about reality that this applies to human beings even. So human beings have a human nature and that there are certain things that are good or bad for us because of what we are, because we were um, made a certain way and we have a certain uh, nature and goal that we're moving towards. And this kind of directs everything that he's talking about here, uh, his metaphysic of essentialism. And so a lot of this, this objectivity flows from this, that there's objectively good things and objectively bad things for a human being based on what it is. So for example, it would be bad for me to desire to eat like rocks and dirt and toothpaste and things like that. Those are not good for me to eat. And that's objectively true. That's a fact about nature. Um, so what else could we say about that, Samuel? Yeah. So one, one thing I noticed 
uh, in his article was he he wrote about an objective essence. It logically follows that there's an objective standard on what is good or bad for that thing. And that's uh, that's exactly what you described right there. But I just think it's really interesting where it's a it's a logical consequence of that. So um, if we have this thing with a nature or an essence or it's objectively something, we could not then have it a mere matter of human opinion that something is good or bad for that objective thing right there. Um, And so we that's why we have to commit to essentialism, because uh, we can actually know these things and it's not a matter of human convention. So um, that's why in this article and also what you'll see in Plato is uh, it opposes what we actually see in culture today, which is that relativism um, and that uh, that license and just everything is up to us and we can we can live how we want uh, without restraint right there. Yeah. All right. And I would say that uh, basically following just kind of the commonsensical views of people like Plato and Aristotle, the Christian church just followed with that and was basically um, saying, yeah, those are just kind of commonsensical truths about reality, that there's things like an objective human nature. There are objective males and objective females, and there are good and bad things based on good and bad things for those creatures based on what they are. And the Christian church, along with the pagan philosophers of that time, uh, that was just kind of viewed as common sense philosophy and just common sense reason. And today, kind of all of that's been abandoned. People don't believe that there's objective objective truth, uh, objective natures, like human nature, things like that. And there's a ton of different reasons for that. It's a complicated question. But yeah, I would agree. We, we do need to, uh, part of this return to reason is returning to just the common sense essentialism of the ancient church, of the medieval church, um, and of these philosophers, Plato and Aristotle, et cetera. Yeah. Yeah. No, I agree. We, we do have to return to that. And I, it used to be that way. It used to be that way. And I think we can actually see in American history itself and just how it started and where it went and the progress it took that it did degenerate. Um, and that's actually what the article is mainly about was the right. degeneration of reason uh, being up top and it going towards the bottom. And there's actually right. different character types. Um, so during this whole discussion, it's not what Plato thinks uh about how we should run a government which people usually just go to when we talk about politics it's oh how should we run the government no um it's not it's not necessarily that it's specifically about what types of people we have in our society today right Right. and so um i think we'll like i think plato has the right idea when it comes to the different types of people um so when it comes to the different classes so he he has the productive class, the auxiliary class, and then philosopher kings, right? Mm-hmm. And they're actually, it gets smaller and smaller. So most people, he says, are uh, appetitive or follow their appetite or are just that base level thing that do the uh, those normal jobs of just like farming or uh, owning a shop or something like that. Mm-hmm. So those those business people and those hard workers right there. And then we got an even smaller group of people, which is the auxiliary class. So like the uh the peacemakers the military people the uh the policemen uh okay. everything like that where they're where they have a spirit that triumphs over the appetite so they are all for having courage and honor and uh bravery to stop injustices right. uh, and then the last type of person is the philosopher kings which i think um today we not only have hatred for but we kind of have forgotten about that idea altogether where this there's like this elite of the elite the smallest class of people that um are able to have reason lead their spirits and then their appetite as well in order to uh rule correctly right yeah. and it's and one thing i actually do want to talk about and hear your thoughts on is the fact that he specifically points out multiple times that it's a very difficult thing to do yeah. right so what do you think Right. He, uh, well, one, this is Plato's conception of an ideal society. Um, it's, it's not even, it's, uh, whether Plato's like pushing for this in society particularly or not is kind of up for, up for debate a little bit more. And so, um, it's not like we're arguing for a philosopher Kings to rule society, but the sense that you're getting at of, uh, Plato sees like the leaders of society 
as such a strong moral uh, weight and responsibility and such a rigorous responsibility that they have and a devotion to the good and the true is what he would say. Uh, a like they would, uh, the philosopher kings are basically their lives are directed by reason and reason is pursuing the good, the true and the beautiful for their own sake. So not for other ends, but simply for their own sake, because they're that good. And so this, for example, in a Christian sense, this would be uh, people, the rulers in society who are governing with the mindset of um, we are simply pursuing all, all of our actions are simply pursuing the good of God himself. And everything flows from that in, in how they govern. And so that is basically perfect people, <laughs> people mm -hmm. that are so governed by reason, so um, uh, virtuous in a sense that they would be like kind of perfect, perfected leaders. And so this is an idealistic thing for Plato. Um, and yes, it is very difficult. He talks about it being a, a physical, rig phys phys physically rigorous thing, a spiritually rigorous thing, a moral, morally rigor rigorous thing. And from this, um, I just want to read what Phaser has as sort of a definition of the virtuous person. So he says, the virtuous person exhibits, or this quote, exhibits the cardinal virtues or excellencies, wisdom, courage, temperance, and justice. So those are the four cardinal virtues. Yeah. He's wise insofar as his intellect grasps objective reality. So he actually recognizes that a tree is a tree, a human nature is a human nature, a man is a man. Um, mm. courageous insofar as he will not allow fear of pain or desire for pleasure to divert him from the right course of action, temperate insofar as his desires are appropriate and indulged only when fitting, and just insofar as reason, spirit, and appetite are all playing their proper role in the hierarchy. I think that's a really good definition. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And this hierarchy of the psyche, um, it's that... Uh, People should know things, then feel rightly, and then desire naturally. Those are those are the descriptions that Ed Phaser wrote, which which uh, I think is really good. And that that definition he gave is also really good. And right. um, one thing that's really interesting is that he points out that we actually see this in the church sometimes throughout history. So I think he said it was like monks uh, were this type of person where. Uh, a lot of times in the past, these elite of the elites or um, whatever, they, they were actually denied uh, simple things like private property or marriage or something like that. And that's what we see actually with the monks in church history is mm -hmm. they didn't have private property. They were communal. They they didn't get married. They would just live life with each other. Um, and they focused on that. And they uh, they basically focused on pursuing the good, the true and the beautiful in their entire lives. And uh, another thing is that they do have to make sure they are striving towards that, uh, even if there is a threat. Um, mm -hmm. And I think that's what makes martyrs so special, I think, is that we do see these, uh, if we're using the class type, philosopher kings uh, that are pursuing the true, the good, and the beautiful. Um, and that's their first goal, but then also their spirit is next in the hierarchy. So when someone does persecute them or does, uh, once you try and force them to deny Christ or something like that, or even just deny the truth, they will say no, and then go to the death for it. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, not a lot of people would do that. Right. So I think, I think Perfect. that's a really interesting, uh, like side note right there of, we, right. of the thing we get with martyrs and monks and stuff like that. And, and Socrates for Plato's it, Socrates in the philosophy world is kind of the, uh, the forerunner to like a Christian martyr in a sense, because he dies for the truth for the sake of truth itself. Mm -hmm. And so Christian martyrs kind of, um, are the, the Christianized version of that, of mm -hmm. a Socratic martyr who's dying simply for the sake of something higher than himself. Um, and mm -hmm. obviously for Christians, it's dying for Christ. Um, yeah, like that's interesting. Yeah, and I yeah I actually have the uh, the painting of Socrates about to drink the poison, and it's actually it's really cool because mo like in this painting, all the people are kind of like looking away from from Socrates or like kind of ashamed, and then there's people in the background just kind of like walking away, and then he's actually pointing up right when he's about to drink this poison, right? Mm -hmm. Which we can see uh, is is pretty much his speech. Uh, if you've read his speech, it's really hey, focus on these heavenly things. Right. right. 
pursue those things right there. That's that's the important thing. Um, right. Reminds me of life. Stephen. Yeah. Stephen and yeah. Seven is kind of similar. Kind yeah. of a Christian version of it. Um, and then for today, I always like kind of think about as I think about how Plato talks about the appetites and reason and things like that, as I think about like, um, as I try to become a better and better man, I'm thinking about how can I uh, have my reason? Like, how can I have the mind of Christ governing uh, my passions and my appetites? So uh, things like um, bodily goods, like food and drink and sexual desire, things like that are, are good things. They're created by God and they're good, but they're always uh, bad if they are one misdirected at the wrong thing or if they're in excess mm-hmm. if, re- if reason isn't governing and reining it back to what uh it should be and so mm-hmm. it isn't a saying that sex is bad or that food is bad or that liquor is bad or things like that it's saying that those things are are good things but when they're taken out of proportion they turn into awful things and i find that very helpful <clears throat> yeah and this actually gets into natural law a little bit. But before we actually talk about natural law, I want to yeah. point out uh, I, like about this whole thing about uh, how to live rightly and right. the uh, like philosopher kings and all of that. Um, one thing we haven't mentioned is how Jesus perfectly like lives like this. I, I would say I would say yeah. it's that he lives the life of. He is pursuing the truth, the good, the true, and the beautiful. He's pursuing God above all else. That is his first thing mm-hmm. when, when you see his life. Uh, then the second thing is he he goes to the death for it, right? And he doesn't uh, step back. He is courageous. He has that uh, spirit, as Ed Fazer is talking about, the, the ability to correct injustices, even if people persecute him or even if people hate him, Um and I think we see this, all of this perfectly done in his life. And even just the idea of ruling over the appetites and his um, his ability to uh, just like fast or have these spiritual disciplines that we see in, in the Gospels and the New Testament that we should also follow. Um, Jesus lives that life just like that. Right. Um, yeah, and I think yeah. that's that's why you can actually call... I, there's a book by, um, his name's Chad Pennington. He's a professor at Southern and he has a book called Jesus, the greatest philosopher. And in the, in the very truest sense, Jesus is the greatest philosopher. Not when, when we think of philosopher today, we think of somebody who like thinks about trolley problems and stuff like that, just like useless, trivial mind puzzles. When in reality, yeah. classically conceived a philosopher like Plato and Aristotle or Augustine, there's people who, um, are trying to use reason to help people live well. They're trying to yeah. use they're, they're trying to use reason to help people flourish, not just flourish in terms of pleasure, but flourishing in terms of uh, like happiness of your soul, fulfillment of your soul. And ultimately, that led all of those guys to some ultimate good. Plato yeah. called it the the form of the good, uh, which mm-hmm. is based God for him. And then, um, of course, Augustine and Aquinas and the whole Christian tradition just call that God and the Trinity. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And we, we, we can't escape using a Lord of the Rings reference. We cannot escape it. So I'm going to bring it up right now. So since we're talking about Jesus and his life and everything, I also think we can see this type of life in the offices of the prophet, priest and king in the story of Lord of the Rings. So, uh, Gandalf, Frodo and, uh, Aragorn, Mm -hmm. especially, especially Aragorn in, in Gandalf, I would say, um, but my, my head goes straight to Aragorn for some reason for this specific example because of the type of person he is in Lord of the Rings. He uh, he has a mission, right? Mm-hmm. He's going after that mission. He doesn't let anything stop him. So he is, he is like the epitome of what a man should be, right? He is yeah. the best example of what a man should be. And um, I think it's just so cool because he... He leads people in in Lord of the Rings. He he protects. He is uh, fighting for what is uh, right and true, and he doesn't back down. Right, mm-hmm. and he has control over his uh, what we would say appetites. Right, yeah. um, that actually just reminds me of like second breakfast. Right, because. <laughs> <laughs> Pippin is just like, oh no, let's eat. He's like, we're no, we have to move. Let's go. Yeah. He's not, he's not ready to just sit down and indulge in food. Right. 
right? And it's not, and and he was probably hungry too. But yeah. that's the whole point is that he had, um, he only indulged in his appetites when they were appropriate according to reason. Yeah. And so, as men and women today, we need to be thinking about when I am engaging in uh, food or drink or sexual activity or um, those whatever whatever it is. It is is this in accordance with reason? Does this actually contribute to what is good for me objectively as a human being or not? Is this in accordance with God's word? Things like that. Yeah. Um, so that's a great thing to bring up. But we should probably get back to yeah Sado and move stuff. on. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, we can just do. Five million podcasts on on Aragorn and Lord of the Rings and <laughs> or the Aragorn. Rings. Yeah. Um, um, okay. Uh, yeah. So natural law, though, and yeah. um, starting to get into the different types of societies and the yeah. the character types of that. So um, before we actually get into the different types, uh, it is important to note the importance of natural law and how uh, Plato and and the basically the Greek philosophers set the foundation for the West with natural law and how um mm -hmm. how kind of people thought or how things should happen or how governments should uh kind of run or or be followed right there and he says uh the ruler should be in the perfect society right the the philosopher kings and have have all of that rightly ordered um mm -hmm. yeah and anything right. basically away from that and this this perfect society is a deviation right and he says that in these four stages that also match the four psychological types, each one gets progressively worse as in each one deviates more and more from how it's supposed to be, right? right? So it's not like four ways to deviate. It's, hey, if you deviate this way, it's going to get worse by deviating this way, which is going right. to get worse, which is going to get worse. It's all just kind of a slippery slope. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And um, or I was going to say, as we go into that, um, I think, Christians have kind of uh, different conceptions of natural law and they think about different things when when we mention natural law. And so I think that yeah. we want a, we want a balanced view on it, because obviously, just like Romans one and two, Paul's talking about um, basically what is revealed clearly in nature from the things that are made that he kind of appeals to common sense for humanity of like, you should know these things are obvious. Um, these different uh, sexual behaviors are obviously disordered and don't do them. And then in Romans 2, your conscience appeals to you. It, it is a witness to you and bears witness um, of the moral law within. And so this is what we're talking about when we mentioned natural law. And I think Christians just kind of have a spectrum of some people overdo it with natural law. And then I think some people diminish it to the point of it basically having no part in what they talk about. And so I think there's just mm -hmm. a balance to seek there of uh, how natural law plays into what we're talking about. We're not saying you can be, you know, that people are saved through the natural law or that people can... It is enough to hold people accountable in Romans yeah. 1 and 2. So we, we know enough about nature that it holds us accountable to God's law. Yeah. Um, and it, and we can't know it perfectly, but we can definitely know some things from it. Yeah. And very obviously, we can know some things from it. And we can actually appeal, I think, to unbelievers and say, you, you should know these things. They're from nature. These are yeah. obvious. Um, yeah. So we, well, should, yeah. we should know how things are supposed to be, and we have the ability to know them uh yeah maybe not right. specifics but in general we should know how things are supposed to be and so and um, and, and we yeah. are and we recognize that people are not um yeah that we are tainted by sin and so yeah. our sin corrupts our minds and corrupts our ability to perceive the natural law and more so to actually act in accordance with it so our sin taints our ability to live in accordance with the natural law which yeah. is not different from god's law it is um god's book of nature that's the natural law. And so just kind of clarifying from a biblical yeah. biblical perspective what natural law is and what it isn't. Yeah. And I think yeah. I think we also need to focus on the context here, which is um, we, yeah, we aren't saying that natural law has anything to do with salvation, mm -hmm. right? It has enough to condemn us, but not to save us. Right. That's how it naturally goes in, uh, in Romans, right? right. But um, the context here is character types in societies. We aren't talking about uh, any type uh, of field of study like eschatology or anything like mm -hmm. that. But um, we're really just talking about types of characters when it comes to natural law, not salvation. Um, so yeah, we, we should, uh, we can start getting into it. So um, the first deviation from this philosopher King perfect society ideal uh, that Plato has is a democracy, right? Mm -hmm. And 
he says that it actually doesn't sound like the worst thing ever. It's actually, in a lot of ways, good, right? And that's because the appetites are still in check. So it's not like we're ruled by sex, food, money, and stuff like that. Um, mm-hmm. It's Those things are ruled over. It's just reason isn't at the top. Um, mm-hmm. It's courage and honor and bravery is at the top. So it's the spirit rules over reason at that point, which then yeah. uh, rules the appetites still. Um, and in, in this hierarchy, by the way, uh, the spirit and reason aren't opposed to each other. They are working together, but one still takes priority. And in the democracy, it's the, uh, it's the spirit that takes over. Right. So yeah. It kind of reminds, if you like think about the kind of the history of America, this reminds me of different stages of it. So there's, you know, stages in American history in which like honor and bravery and courage were probably the highest good Mm -hmm. as opposed to just God himself as the, as the highest good, uh, which is how the, these things, you know, he, he talks about how these things are a slippery slope that all build into each other. And I can think of like, I don't know, revolutionary war, civil war type things where America and even, even like hmm. early two thousands America, when we have still elements of like, um, whoever you are, Democrat or Republican, you still have the strong nationalism of America's great. And, uh, we want to win wars and we want to fight and we want to honor the military and things like that. Like when I grew up, those were still kind of there. Uh, and then now that they're, they're not really, <laughs> they were, yeah. were moving further and further away from even honoring uh, things like courage and bravery and virtue. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas maybe 50 years ago, or like Eisenhower America, um, you have a, a much stronger sense of at least like courage is still objectively recognized as a really great thing and like standing up for your comrades, things like that. But that was still, if that's the highest good, then you're already on this slope of this trajectory of flowing down into degeneracy if you're not recognizing god is the highest good yeah yeah and i i do see that in america as well now um in the in the democracy it says that the spartans are like the best example of that uh now i would say that america never got to that level of of that i think we kind of maybe slid through that at a minimal uh spot and then went straight to the next deviation but Mm-hmm. Uh, for this, what comes to my mind is actually the world wars. Cause I, I think when America first started and had that revolutionary war and maybe even the civil war and when we were correcting, uh, certain evils and stuff, I actually do think that we were still to a degree, uh, kind of ruled by people who had their head on straight, who had reason, but were also courageous and brave. So like the revolutionary war we had, if you read all the founding fathers and everything like that, they are, they are very smart, very intelligent and wise. And a lot of them uh, were religious and followed God. And at the same time, they were actually being brave and uh, had honor and were courageous and stuff like that. But uh, all the way through to what comes to my mind is World War II is when we hit that, it was actually like at the point where you should serve for your country. Honor and bravery and courage were like the high esteem. And also around that time, that's that's when I would actually say our economy maybe kind of like changed where everyone started focusing on uh, working and producing and really that capitalism took hold in, in the 1900s right there. Right. right. And that's where I think it started to change. I think before the 1900s, maybe it wasn't like that but in the 1900s boom we had that we had that shoot right that's interesting he says uh i think this is we want to go to like the next stages we got like oligarchy as the next one correct and this is where yeah well um though well there is one one more thing uh on the democracy before we go to the the oligarchy it's um uh on democracy it's martial achievement right there so it's just the fact that hey we should achieve things for uh for military purposes and that's that's kind of what shows that we have success and then how it moves to oligarchy and what you're about to explain will is that money starts to take over mm-hmm. okay and that's that's the danger of money right there and i think that lines up with all the warnings about money in the bible as well but it's it's this fact uh of america could only get so much martial achievement and so what happens is uh, 
basically marketing and money replace martial achievement with economic achievement because we can only really get so much of it. And it like slowly slides to money, which then moves to oligarchy, which is right. And I don't see that with like, well, it reminds me of just how like today, even like conservatives would talk about how our current military is probably a pretty inflated thing. Just in terms of a like a, just a system and a structure, it's a massive, big, inflated, bloated thing, just like everything in the government. But an oligarchy is when money takes over. So money becomes the ultimate end, the ultimate goal uh, that's driving everything. And this is where um, the appetites start to take over in society. So when uh, in an oligarchy, the appetites are now the governing thing, but they are governing us towards uh, the slightly better appetites than just like pure lust or indulgence. Um, mm. So with money, you still have to be, um, if money is your highest good, you still have to have some sort of virtue to actually mm. achieve it. So in, uh, in an oligarchy, you need to be restrained by things like some sort of wisdom, at least a worldly sense of wisdom in order to be rich. So uh, getting rich is actually hard and it requires discipline and in many cases, discipline and virtue to some extent to actually and hard work to actually gain that and achieve that. And mm -hmm. so in oligarchy, as we're kind of rolling down the path of de degeneracy, it still seems like there's some sense of virtue. And we could just call this kind of like a pure unbridled capitalism, where it still seems like things are pretty virtuous. But in reality, money is the, is the god of the system. And in this, uh, you have people that are virtuous on the outside, think they're disciplined, they're hardworking to some degree. But in reality, they are aiming at a false god, which is just mammon or money. Um, mm -hmm. So that I think reminds me of other points in American history to some extent. And of course, nothing we can't map all of American history perfectly onto this, you know, four step process or something like that. That's not. What yeah. We're yeah. But no, no, I think you're right. That's um, that's all true. And I think one of the most important characteristics of the oligarchy and the distinctions from oligarchy and democracy is that the appetite starts to rule, mm -hmm. right? This right. is uh, this is where we finally get that switch because in the democracy, we had the spirits over reason over the appetites, right? And they were in harmony working together. But um, once we go to oligarchy, uh, money or appetites start to take over, boom, and they're right. at the top of the hierarchy now and they're leading everything which will cause more degeneracy um, at some yeah. point. So uh, at this point, we've kind of had a fl full flip, but there's mm -hmm. it still can get worse after that full flip right there. Right, and then when money is the ultimate end, then it ushers in, it reminds me of the saying, uh, good times create, or good good men create, what is it? strong men create good times, good times create weak men, weak men create mm -hmm. bad times. Um, so when you have money as the ultimate end and you have like economic flourishing and things like that, mm -hmm. Um, then you get decadence, laziness, apathy towards the things that actually matter. You get a people aren't actually pursuing the good and true and the beautiful for their own sake. Yeah. Pursuing higher things. They're simply just comfortable and apathetic. And I def like definitely see this, <laughs> definitely see this today, even in the mm. church of just like a, a laziness and a, a comfortability with uh, decadence. Mm. Remember in the article, Phaser's talking about how, or Pl Plato's talking about, he's quoting him. Um, how uh, people are just obsessed now with what is it varied varied foods and diets and different like physical regimens he's talking yeah. about it's like yeah that's just like our entire culture of fitness and obsession with food foodies and stuff like that yeah um, we have such a excess and such a decadence in our society that we're so obsessed with things like fashion so obsessed with things like f food and fitness and health and things like that that we're just blowing it way out of proportion to what they should be. Mm -hmm. um, and people are building their entire lives around how do I look um, as opposed to like, what is my soul and eternal things. And so, oh, yeah, yeah, I definitely see that today. <clears throat> yeah. And I would love a, uh, I would love a discussion specifically on that to like the rise and triumph. I would, I would love to discuss that yeah. stuff in another podcast, oh, but, definitely. Um, but focusing, focusing on this and what you just said there, I think, yes. Yes, you're correct on on all of that. So we'll first with the cycle of like uh, hard times create strong men, strong men create good times, and then good times create weak men and stuff like mm -hmm. that. Um, if we if we are trying to characterize America or some point, I would say it's 
again, around the world wars or like after it at some point where we got through this hard time. We have some really, really strong men and good workers and hard workers. And we do see it like some type of golden age, Mm -hmm. right? Where then people start getting comfortable. People get lazy. People uh, get idle, don't really do anything. And they're uh, actually one word that stuck out to me was spoiled, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Ed Fazer said that people would be spoiled. Uh, and I think we we definitely have that today. And so when when people get this spoil get spoiled, and then they also have what you were talking about this obsession with with fashion or food or all all these things right there, um, a problem does actually arrive. And this actually, I think this is what leads to the democracy. Actually, um, it's this fact of. People want profit so much. People want money so much. And people are obsessed with all this uh, stuff. And it would be the, um, oh man, what class was it? Was it the productive class? Yeah, the productive class. They're obsessed with that stuff so much that uh, what happens is they start to compromise the true, the good, and the beautiful, Mm -hmm. right? Because again, before it was spirit ruled, but reason was still there. People still cared about that. But when we get to this oligarchy, um, money takes over and then people want money so bad that they start uh, they start compromising. And so you actually see that still happening today of like businesses turning over. So there's still a remnant of mm-hmm. oligarchy right there of those character types where um, you'll see companies and businesses, if they don't change their position or if they're a Christian business or something, if they don't change their position, they'll actually... Um, be uh persecuted for it or something like that and that's uh that's a big problem but plenty of companies just like make the switch they're like oh yeah yeah if you want to keep buying my stuff i'll say i don't believe in this um yeah right and i see uh, what we're talking about is also just a biblical cycle that maps onto history very well of when human Mm -hmm. beings get an excess of resource and an excess of goods and things like that. And they get comfortable. They forget Mm. God, they forget their creator and they stray away and they just cycle down into greater cycles of degeneracy and Mm. on democracy now on kind of the last stage of, uh, Plato's or not the last stage, but almost the last stage of Plato's, um, kind of his ladder of societies, uh, democracy is where everyone is free to do as he likes. So this is again, not talking about the political procedures of democracy, which, yeah, America is, you know, broadly supportive of in the sense of the people rule in a sense in America. Mm. And that's in general, a good thing, although we're more like a a constitutional republic or something like that. Yeah. Um, But for Plato, a democracy is one in which everybody is just free to do as he likes, just like pure license. Um, Desires are only restrained by competing desires. So desires are not restrained by reason. uh, And you have like the hierarchy of reason, spirit and and appetites Um, in a democracy desires the base things are governed they're 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 governing everything and they're only restrained by other passions and so um basically it's just like your love for sex and your love for money that are warring together (laughs) and there's reason isn't restraining anything yeah and so it's just competing desires and that's it and so he says uh here he says democracy on plato's account is characterized by the diversity of its characters and treats all men as equal, whether they are equal or not. In yeah. particular, it treats all ways of life as equal, no matter how peril, irrational, or immoral. So just everybody just does what they want, d- does what they want. Um, so all hierarchy basically disintegrates in society. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I, I think all of that is correct. And back to like the biblical cycle, I do think we can map the biblical cycle onto this. And I'm sure these character types as opposed to governments, obviously these governments weren't created, uh, before Plato necessarily, but, or like known about, maybe there existed at some point, something like it or something like that. But I think these character types have probably been seen since the beginning of civilizations and Mm -hmm. they probably went through some type of degeneracy, uh, like that. There are very common characteristics throughout all civilizations and how they fell and and stuff like that. So there is a cycle. There is a cycle and there are commonalities and everything like that. Right. Now to this to this idea of democracy though. Um yeah, everyone lives as they please please. There's no restraint. Uh nothing like that. And everyone and what I specifically thought was interesting was um 
being treated as an equal. And I wanted to talk about that a little bit because uh, everyone is treated as an equal, even when they aren't. And I like, it depends on what, what you mean by that. Cause as Christians, we would say all people are like made in the image of God and uh, deserve certain rights and everything and are equal in that sense. But so it really depends on how we're using equal. But I think the point here is that true or true equality doesn't really exist. We can't just treat everyone exactly the same. People Mm -hmm. are different. People are going to be treated differently. Even just in simple relationships, we can see that I'm going to treat my family different than I treat strangers, right? Or something like that. Um, But yeah, what what do you, how do we reconcile image of God and treating everyone equally and believing? Yeah, stuff we have to hold on to. Absolutely, a firm, firm truth that all human beings are are because of the image of God infinitely valuable, mm-hmm. and I think that's something that that Plato and Aristotle missed to a certain degree that they they don't actually have a strong doctrine of that, and so you have in those pagan philosophers uh, some pretty harsh things about like um, basically if you're just not as good as other people, you're less valuable. Like mm-hmm. they don't have a strong doctrine of yeah. the amount of utilitarian in a sense, sure, and like. Um, but Christianity comes around and says, no, we're, we're all of the same nature. We're of the same blood and we are made in the image of God and thus infinitely valuable. And that's why, um, everybody from the elderly to Mm -hmm. the infant, to the mentally disabled, to the high productive member of society are all infinitely valuable, um, Mm -hmm. in the eyes of God. And so we are infinite, infinitely valuable in that sense. Yeah. Um, and it's more so when he's talking about, uh, treating everything as equal is just having no distinctions or no hierarchies of people in at all. And so basically having no, no authority structures. Mm -hmm. Um, He talks about uh, like teachers and pupils in there. And he says how in these democracies, the pupils rule over the teachers and the teachers Mm -hmm. try to accommodate to their pupils and the pupils hate them still. (laughs) Yeah. You can, and it's similar to today, like with parents and children, he talks about this, like disobedience of children to parents in the article as Mm -hmm. well of Plato, basically predicting that in a a democracy, uh, the kids will rule over the parents, Mm -hmm. all authorities just flip. And basically the parents will cater to the children to try to befriend them. And then they'll still hate their parents. It's like, whoa, that Mm -hmm. is like, it is today. Um, it says, uh, the very idea of a natural order of things that determines that some desires are disordered and forbidden by reason becomes hateful to a democratic man. So the, dem- the democratic man hates all sense of natural law and desire desires being ordered right or wrong. And yeah. he hates hierarchy and authority. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then that's, that's a lot of great stuff right there actually. And so starting with the being treated as equals part. Yeah. I think we do have to balance that well, but um if we speak about it specifically morally, uh, I think it specifically stands out, uh, which is like, if we make no distinctions between different types of moral people, as in like, if we aren't going to say, um, I mean, if we're talking about uh, a cultural issue, we can say LGBTQ, that that whole issue, uh, that's celebrated, right? Um, and that's, that's kind of what he's getting at. If we don't make those distinctions morally or anything like that, then okay, yeah, everyone is treated as equal. We, we, we say, oh, hey, this immoral person or this moral person, there's really no difference between them. Mm-hmm. Um, well, there actually is a difference between them, morally speaking, if right. we are actually following the true, the good, and the beautiful. Right. Um, and yeah, th- also in, in this type, we have character types of not respecting authorities. So um both with fathers and teachers and stuff like that. Yeah, we, we see that all the time today. Uh, one, we have a lack of, of father figures. And and then two, with with teachers and pupils, yeah, there there is like no discipline, no, no respect right there. If um and I I mean I, I've seen it before. There are there are students that have no idea what discipline is. Mm-hmm. They they don't whether they are disciplined or whether you discipline them, they they are like shocked by it. It's like, whoa, what right. you're you're like do you hate me or something? And then they'll do whatever they can to get out of it. But then they will, the, their opinion of you won't change. Right. right. Um, it probably yeah. reflects itself both in the home and in school. And so you yeah. have kids basically who have no sense of, there's no sense of healthy discipline in the home or like mm-hmm. as growing up as kids, there was never a sense of healthy discipline, mm-hmm. um, healthy, loving discipline. 
uh, as scripture would talk about it. And then that just maps into school in which now any sense of authority is just lashed out against. Um, yeah. Yeah. But, and then as a teacher, you see that a lot. Yeah. And so it's like, let's be, it's this idea of like, let's just make sure you like me or let's just create a spot where you can feel good and it doesn't matter if there's respect or discipline or anything like that. Right. Right. Um, which is, which is, which is crazy. And so actually one thing right there is that I, in the, uh, in the article, I talked at some point about, uh, restraint is intolerable and then it can, and, and right after it talked about no one having a master. All right. So, and that looks to like the parent child distinction. There's the teacher pupil distinction. Mm -hmm. If there is really no restraint, like restraint is a bad thing. You should do whatever you want and you cannot restrain yourself or other people, then there would be no uh, masters or there wouldn't be anyone above another person where we see that um, degenerate. But there, there is a problem. It's be, the problem is, is that people naturally have something ruling over them, whether it be a person disciplining you and teaching you or like your stomach or something like Paul says, mm -hmm. yeah, their stomachs were their gods or something like that. Right. So. Right, and the biblical idea of everybody everybody has a master, everybody is enslaved to something, or either enslaved uh, properly to Christ, where they're bond servants of Christ, who is mm. the true loving king, who is the proper master uh, to yeah. us as his subjects, uh, or we are enslaved to our own desires and we think we're free, or think we are autonomous when in reality we are just enslaved to our own desires. Yeah, And uh, kind of going off the same idea um, that we are just talking about, uh, we are currently in a world today in which adults are trained to not offend anybody mm -hmm. and our young people are being trained to be offended at everything. So yeah. adults are <laughs> adults are trained as the, the worst thing you can possibly do is offend a young person. Yeah. And then young people are trained, um, be offended by everything you were a victim in every single way. Yeah. <laughs> as a bad, a bad recipe in which we are. Flip, we're just flipping hierarchies consistently of mm -hmm. um, our natural sinful orientation is to flip the natural order of things, to flip the natural hierarchies that exist in marriage in families in church, um, things like that in society. Mm -hmm. And basically we want to be our own rulers, have no authority over us. And it reminds me of um, in Isaiah three, uh, Paul or not Paul. Uh, God <laughs> is basically condemning um Israel. And it's basically saying that the punishment of Israel in Isaiah three is that the children, the women and children rule over the men is <laughs> what it yeah. says. Basically, I'm going to take these strong men from society and your punishment will be that your children will rule over you. And it's like, yeah. when we fall into degeneracy and yeah, and we fail to lead as if, if men fail to lead, then what we basically have is, um, a society in which the, the hierarchies are completely flipped. And there's no uh, leaders according to reason or according to God's design. And so we just have um, basically uh, young people who don't know anything. And we're two young people who don't know much. <laughs> but we have young people who are who don't know anything who are ruling everything and who are everybody else is walking on eggshells around so they don't offend. And it is an absurd situation that we're in. Yeah. Yeah. And <clears throat> it is <laughs> it is actually absurd that. Um, we, we are acting this way and actually what this, well, what the, what the article says this would eventually lead to is a need or a want to restore order. So right now we are ruled by our lower appetites, sex, food, drink, stuff like that. And the, the order has flipped. So, um, a lot of people actually say today that God is punishing us in that way. Like he has removed his blessings and he is actually punishing us by allowing that flip to, uh, to happen where kids are starting to take over in parent-child relationships. And um, same with, uh, with, with education, students are starting to rule the schools. I mean, um, mm -hmm. think about, uh, I, I don't know, I just heard a, a story. I, I haven't done much, much research on this where a, um, a child uh, identified as a cat and would only meow in yeah. class, but the teacher wasn't allowed to make the student answer a question, right? right? Wasn't allowed to teach them anything. Uh, right. the, the child was allowed to meow and just be there and move through the grade, uh, which is wow. So children in that sense have actually started ruling 
teacher pupil relationships right. as well. And it's, it's not good for anybody. It's mm -hmm. not good for the children. <laughs> it's not good for children to be put in charge of everything. Uh, so it's basically, you can, um, like mom, can I go play out in the road? No mom. Can I go buy a gun? No mom. Can I change my gender? Sure. <laughs> we are basically putting, putting children increasingly in charge of themselves in these absurd ways mm. in which it is not good for them because they don't know anything because you're five. Yeah. Uh, so of course you don't. And so as a parent, I should be the one because I've lived life because I've uh, been guided by wisdom and virtue for decades and decades. Yeah. Theoretically. Um, I am the one who is able to, <laughs> uh, one punish you accordingly when you need to be, but also yeah. love, love you and guide you in the way that you should go. And so I think Plato would be very, uh, not only is he prophetic, but he would be very appreciative of like just Ephesians six, which just yeah. talks about the biblical guidelines of a household and how a household should function, how father should, uh, father and mother, but particularly the father needs to train up his children in the discipline and admonition of the Lord. And yeah. I think Plato would, would amen that in a sense. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. Um, and I think we should keep going and finish up here, but, yeah. um, at this point with the democracy, things would get so bad that people actually do want a tyrant, as he says, to restore some type of order. Uh, I've heard Jordan Peterson talk about this actually, which is like, obviously tyrants are bad, but to a degree, they actually restore order, yeah. which satisfies, satisfies something in human beings. Right. Like right. it's going to be so chaotic that at one point we would want someone to take over. Right. That there would be some type of stability. Right. right. And before, before uh, the article actually goes to tyranny, Ed Fazer actually brings up the allegory of the cave, which mm -hmm. is one of my favorite allegories of all time. If, uh, if you don't know it, it's basically this idea of people are in a cave and they are basically chained down. Uh, by these appetites, by these uh, sex, food, and drink, and they're just looking at shadows on the wall. But one person is allowed to leave, is uh, is unchained, and then turns around, finds uh, like a fire creating these shadows, and starts going out of the cave and seeing sunlight, and is basically exposed to this whole new world, and reveals uh, is revealed uh, the truth is revealed to him, the whole truth. Right. And um, the point is to say that it's better that way. Like if right. you were to find out the truth there. Um, but the, the, the problem is, is that when the person returns to these people in a democracy that are democratic in a sense, not the government type, again, the character type, they actually hate it. Right. And they hate the person bringing that news. Yeah. Right. Which is, which is wild to think, but also I think Plato misses something in the allegory of the cave and Christianity pieces everything together. So um, I mean, that light outside that illuminates everything and exposes uh, the truth to this person coming out of the cave, we would, as Christians, just say that is that is Jesus Christ, right? Right. Yeah. So what are, what are your thoughts on the allegory of the cave? Right. The John 1, 9 of uh, Christ coming into the world illumines every man. Um, I think that it is the, uh, what Plato's getting at is a beautiful mm -hmm. description that he's grasping at and that Christianity just kind of fills in the gaps of hmm. um really the light breaking through is is not not some philosopher who just by his own muster pulls himself up by his bootstraps and walks outside and finds the truth it is that god's grace is the light that breaks into the cave really and and then some see it and mm -hmm. go to it and are drawn to it and then others hate the light yeah and so uh it is it is cool to christianize <laughs> Plato's allegory of the cave. It is very neat. Yeah. And That's beautiful, beautiful picture. It is. And here's, here's the really cool thing that I liked the most. Um, Ed Fazer described it as uh, basically all of the bad stuff in our world and part of culture are the shadows on the cave. So the, the fire and the sunlight, those are just ignored. We're focusing on these shadows, these lower things. And so he would say like uh, tech today, a lot of tech could be the shadows on the cave, the things that are distracting us from the true things, the things we're obsessed with and chained down by, right? Um, and Advisor warns against ugly art and yeah. pleasure seeking, which is cool because uh, he would just say it corrupts us more and more and more. So we're already in this democracy where everything is horrible, but if we keep making art and we keep 
uh, seeking pleasure and seeking these appetites as opposed to the things that actually matter, it's just going to get worse and worse and worse and worse. Right. It's it's like the habit of a culture. We're we're habitual. If if the culture keeps doing these things, it's going to keep getting worse and worse and worse. We'd have to come up with new and better things to do to get better, right? Um, and at this point where we get this ugly art, more corruption, pleasure-seeking, stuff like that, we we actually get what he says is a hate of rationality. I think it's like mythology or something like that. Mm-hmm. But that's that's the whole description of the allegory of the cave right there. Right. And he says, this is quoting from him, I was going to mention this as well. Plato warns that art and music characterized by ugliness of form and bad rhythm and disharmony <laughs> and a popular culture that glorifies bad character, ill discipline, meanness, or ugliness do mm. quote cumulative psychological damage, corrupting moral sensibilities and capacity for rational argument. That is mm. like a one-to-one correlation with our culture today. Our, yeah. What a culture values in its inter- entertainment, what a culture values in its, art and music yeah. things like that says a lot about it in our culture values uh gar- hot garbage <laughs> yeah. for our music our music is not only not beautiful it celebrates ugliness it celebrates disharmony it celebrates no effort it celebrates all the things that are ugly mm-hmm. um it's we horrible. have no we have no recognition in culture of of good art or good music our art today is uh kind of the joke of Postmodern art is something like a five-year-old could do. And we in, try to import meaning into it and say, like, the worse it is, the better it is. Yeah. Um, it is a, it is a basically putting an instrument on the heartbeat of the health of a culture society is what do they value in their art? What do they value in their music? And our culture today values just basically pure degeneracy, uh, yeah. pure sexual deviancy outwardly in its music. And then that's art. Yeah. Yeah, that's and and Plato's warning about it 2300 years ago and saying this is how a society functions when it goes down this rabbit hole. Yeah. And I know a lot of people that just think art and music and stuff do not matter, but they feed our soul and our mind. And that's the stuff we focus on and that we enjoy. And uh, I think it does either build us up or corrupt us. So we have to be very careful of that. Um, Yeah. Yeah. So. Uh, I think we should move on to the last thing. We're uh, we're getting to time here, but let's yeah. let's do the last character type, which is tyranny. Yeah. And so after you get this democracy, and there's just a bunch of this chaos, we get the need for a tyrant to one restore some type of order. But then the, also the character type of a tyrant is this idea that we, the democracy creates a bunch of what, what's called parasitic drones. Yeah. Um, and some of them are just there, like doing their thing and just kind of like follow things wherever they go, go with the flow. So, and that's like without a stinger. Then there are parasitic drones with a stinger. So the ones that get mad, this is the woke mob right there. The right. ones that get mad, the ones that um, are all about pol- political correctness, the ones that like will riot and ruin your life if you say the wrong thing. And um, it's, and then also in this, we get, all of the rich people, all the corporate businesses and everything, uh, basically serving all the needs of this political correctness, this woke mob, so that they keep making money. It's a, I would say it's a remnant of the oligarchy. All right. And we can also know this by like mob mentality type of thing. That's, I would say that's a, a term we have today that kind of describes this. But um, yeah, we have these people with money not wanting to lose their money. So they're serving this. Uh, political correctness, these, uh, the masses. And at some point, this stinging drone becomes the tyrant and kind of controls all this stuff. Right. Um, yeah, I think that that's like the most profound piece of kind of the whole article is that this, uh, downslope into degeneracy that Plato talks about that we see signs of in our culture, um, ultimately ends up being how the people who are ruled by ruled and governed by their passions become tyrannical yeah. they become desirous of tyranny they become tyrants themselves and we see this today of the people that are ruled and governed by uh let's say s- sexual appetite or pure license or i can do whatever i want or yeah. bodily autonomy is my highest good things like that in society today those are the people mm-hmm. that uh hate 
they hate anything that tries to impose restraint. Mm -hmm. So they therefore become tyrannical in their own way. Um, and so Plato predicting this a long time ago is, uh, is pretty amazing. Yeah. And what's described as this tyrant, whether it's one person or a couple of people, I don't know, um, is that at this point it's the most indulgent, um, rules through exiles, execution, uh, hints of canceling debts, redistributing land sounds like exactly today, specifically Mm -hmm. like what the left is trying to do. Those aren't right wing doctrines right there. Um, and then also the tyrant is the unhappiest because they're envious, unjust, friendless, godless. They have no one. They're just the, by themselves, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and they're doing horrible things. And so the, it's the unhappiest type of person, right? Yeah. And this is, uh, and it's basically taken to another level because this person will actually execute people. If you think you're on this tyrant's side, you're wrong, right? Yeah. Because what created this person was democracy, which mm-hmm. is where kids were uh, were spoiled, started doing whatever they, they wanted. It had no restraint. They had no respect of authority. They had no God. They they didn't even respect their parents. They kind of ruled over their parents. They, um, they ruled over their teachers. And mm-hmm. in a sense, they would punish their parents, right? Right. They... If they were ruling over their parents, they would punish their parents. Like if their parents didn't do something for them, they would punish them. So if a tyrant came out of that, yes, they would execute you because if they would punish their parents, they would punish you. Right. 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 And ultimately we see how the uh the left will ultimately eat itself is sort of a um that this uh coalition of like tyranny and people ruled by passions, mm-hmm. they ultimately can't stay together as a cohesive force, they will all end up warring against each other. And I think we're starting to see some of that today, where even like factions within the LGBTQ movement are starting to war against each other. And they actually won't, they won't coexist together properly. Uh, Like the transgender community and just the lesbian gay community, they actually can't, they're they're contradictory movements, like in their very, uh, in their very definitions of what they are, they contradict each other. Um, Hmm. One denies basically the existence of gender and the other builds itself up based on uh, definitions of gender that are traditional in a sense of, yeah. yeah. So it's contradictory, contradictory movements that will ultimately eat each other, but in the process they'll bring cultural disaster. Yeah. And I, I think out of all these cultural types and character types and stuff like that, I think we have a remnant of all of these things. So I, I don't think we, we would be right to say that all of us are democracy or something like that, or all of us are tyranny or, Something like that. I would say we have some of everything, right? Because there are people still ruled by reason, even though it's getting rare. Mm -hmm. There are people who still follow honor and courage and stuff like that. There are people who are ruled by money. Mm -hmm. Then we have people who have no restraint, which is obviously like our uh, younger culture, I would say. And then we have that woke mob, which is tyranny. So I'd say we're actually a mix of everything. We're at this, we're at this point where there's a giant battle and a move has to be made. And that was actually the hopeful message at the end. Ed Fazer said, tyranny has not been imposed yet, hmm. right? Uh, but we're at a turning point. Uh, we have to, as a country, figure out what we're doing because we have a bunch of everything here. So um, we have to figure something out. And even though there's all this bullying, we should revive the embers of reason as, it, as it's put. And right. And all of that. And his hopeful message was, we don't remember the persecutors of Socrates. We remember his student, Plato. Yeah. Right? So Socrates, Socrates stood up to this stuff. And somehow Plato is the one that's remembered. And Socrates is as well. Uh, but no one knows the names of the people who killed him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. And ultimately, what Plato would say is we need to return to the embers of reason and as Christians, we would agree and just add a little bit more of what this entails is basically repentance, uh, mm-hmm. repentance, changing our minds, turning back to God, recognizing where we have sinned against our creator, uh, turning back to him and seeking to live for him and uh, the good that he has for our lives. If we submit our desires and submit our um, our lives and our wills to him. And so ultimately, that is our only hope in society. And obviously, God is. Uh, governing everything he is providential over all uh what yeah. we see is madness he's he's providential over it um he's providential over good times and bad times in society and so we 
ultimately we can have hope and trust in him too, that he is governing all things uh, for his glory and for his good, yeah. for the good. Um, and so that is how we as Christians can respond to this and take hope in it. But yeah. that is it, I think, for today's episode as we yeah. went through Plato, the prophet, question mark. Um, and we will uh, feel free to thank you for listening to this and feel free to uh, support us on the different avenues we have down linked below. Uh, and thank you very much for listening to The Contemplating Christian. Yes. So we'll see thanks. you later. Bye. Mm -hmm.